you open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8, 28, and this morning just this one verse, it is in a context, we've been going through Romans and we'll look at all this, but Romans 8, 28, reading from the ESV says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is one of the most often quoted verses among Christians, at least um, Reformed Christians. It highlights the sovereignty of God, uh, God's control over all things. Uh, Paul writes um, this verse here to continue to bring comfort to believers, especially since in um, chapter 5, verse 3 of Romans, he told us that we're to rejoice in our sufferings. Uh, in eight seventeen, he tells us that we are heirs of God, provided we suffer with him. And then in 8.18, he says that we will have sufferings in this present time, although our sufferings aren't worthy to be compared to the future glory that awaits us. But still, there are sufferings, and they, they're called trufflings, tribulations and sufferings. I'll call those trufflings. And so we will have these things, and we'll have trials, they're sometimes called. So Paul, the Holy Spirit, God, does not negate or say, hey, quit it. There's not any sufferings in a Christian life. Chill out. You're, you're taking it too seriously. You need to just smile and, and get on with it. Uh, he's saying no, but there is encouragement in the midst of the trials, tribulations, sufferings that we go through. And here Paul adds that for those who love God, all things, so that's mostly including these sufferings he's talking about, all these things are working together for the good. And so our question is, do you love God? Then all things are working together for your good. And you might say, well, it doesn't feel like it. Maybe not all the time. And that may very well be, but we don't go through this life based on our feelings. We're told to walk by faith and not by sight. So we're going to break this down and see what the Lord is telling us. For his word is truth. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for your word. We thank you that um, your word has told us that we will go through trials and tribulations. That that's not all life is, but that is certainly marked by it. And that when we have um, sunshine, when we have uh, clear skies, we have good days, Lord, help us to be all the more thankful for them. And help us to hear what you have to tell us about our trials, our sufferings, our tribulations, what the right way to look at them is and how you are working providentially for us. And we do thank you and pray that you'll guide the preaching and, and hearing of your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So it's just one verse, so surely this will be a much shorter sermon. It's not going to be, though. And so what I want to do first is I want to translate this verse from Greek to English. We don't usually do that, but I want to translate it. They've already done it in our, I have an ESV, you might have an NIV, a, New, a King James, New, who knows what translation you have. I hope it's a good one. But um, I think it's important for us to look at this verse, since it's just one verse, and see some of the nuances that are there in the original language. Because we do use this verse a lot. You know, God works all things together for good, those who love God and call according to his purpose. I mean, I have it, it's one of those I have at the tip of my tongue. I don't, it may not be one you have at the tip of your tongue, but, but, but it's there. 
And so, uh, and I'm not a Greek scholar. I have, I know how to read Greek. I've taken classes in it. I'm supposed to be able to do this stuff. But there are people, but I'm not asked to be on translation committees for Bibles. So I'm not going to say, hey, I know better than these guys. So, but I have read a lot of people when I'm looking at this. So this is a literal it is impossible to have a literal, a literal translation would just be listening to it in Greek. So we're going to hear the word order and the words as closely as possible as we can, and it would go like this. And we know that to the ones loving God, all things he is working for good, to those who, according to his purpose, have been called. Now, when you read it like that, it's like, okay, no wonder they changed it, because that's a little confusing. And I if, if I were better at my Yoda voice, I would do it, but I'm not going to this early in the morning. But I do want you to hear it in Yoda's voice because what Yoda does, the important part of the sentence first he says, and you know, he makes these things backwards, but in Greek, word order is important because they want to know the most important thing is at the beginning of the sentence, or it may be repeated at the end, but there are cues, clues that we have in the Greek. So just listen to it again with the intonation that Yoda would use without his voice. And we know that to the ones who love in God, all things he is working for good. To those according to purpose have been called. So these are the important parts. To those who love God, all things he is working for good. To those who, according to purpose, have been called. And so first, we know. It's one word in Greek. It's a, it's a statement of a, a foundational truth in Paul's thinking. And But he doesn't say, now I know, and therefore I'm going to tell you about this. He says that at times. But here he says, we know. So, what this means is, as a believer, you should instinctively know this because you yourself, as a believer, have been saved through the preaching, hearing of the gospel. He's writing this to believers. He, he's not, we, we, we can take our churches sometimes and make them so evangelistic in the way we do things that we might at times forget that the reason we're gathered here is for the believers to worship God. That's why we're here. Then if non-believers come in, they'll hear the gospel, they'll see us worshiping, and then and the faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. But you can do that out there. Share the gospel with people. God is sending us into wherever we're going, making disciples, inviting them then to come worship God with us. But a non-believer can't worship God. So we are here to worship God through Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, and Paul is writing to believers. And what he's saying is, believer, something we know. He says, you have to know the gospel, and you must know how God the Father sent his son Jesus from heaven to earth to suffer and die on the cross for our sins, and he was raised from the dead on the third day to declare our righteousness in him through faith. So we have seen, as a believer, God at work in our lives. You have to have seen it. If you haven't seen God at work in your lives, then it's like, okay, why do you believe so God has done something in the life of a believer where he is working in even the most difficult areas of your life. So as you live life as a believer, the longer you live your life as a believer, the more you're going to see times when God has intervened and acted within hard and difficult 
situations. You've seen God take even your own personal sinful actions and in spite of everything has brought some good from it. And that's just looking at it from an earthly perspective. It may be that God was just trying to teach you don't do that again. And there's something good to be said from that. That God's trying to, he is, he is, I try to catch myself, God is trying to. God doesn't try to do anything. God does what he intends to do. That God is teaching you to be more Christ-like. That God is training us in points of righteousness and holiness. Or he's showing you uh, more of his grace. He wants you to see how gracious he is. He wants you to see his power. Uh, the disciples were in the boat and the, the storm comes up. Jesus is in the back of the boat sleeping. Why is that happening? This is all things working together for the good of those who love God and call to his purposes. Why is this happening? That he might demonstrate his power. That those disciples in that boat would look at him and say, even the wind and the waves obey him. And then there's another time there's a, a ship in a storm. And isn't that just metaphorical? But it's just like these things actually happen. There's a ship in a storm. But this time, the boat in the storm, Jesus is not there. He's saying, I'll meet you on the other side later. He comes walking on the water in the middle of the storm. Peter sees him. And he does, you know, he does what Peter does. He's like, you know, say he jumps out to Jesus. But you know what you, he felt being with Jesus in a, you know, if you're, I've been in a boat in a storm with, with my dad in a little John boat. And it's like, and we're out on the lake, Lake Marion? Yeah, down in Man, Lake Marion. It's like this big storm comes up, big, huge lake. And it's like, me. And you're just like, can't get anywhere, me. We're just moving. You see the storm. It's raining. We get, we're going to go, go into the trees. I'm like, it's lightning. I was like, what's going on? And so if I saw somebody walking across the water, my instinct would be, come get in the boat. What are you doing? But it's not. He sees it's Jesus walking on the water. And so Peter's first response is, it's safer with him than it is in here. I need to be where he is. I don't need to try to get him where I am. I'm running to him. So he does it, and he gets out there, and once he's out there, he's going to Jesus. He's walking on the water, and Jesus, I'm sure Jesus knew this was all going to happen and stuff, but depending on how his humanity looks, I mean, you've got to be Jesus just going, what? Look at him go. Look at him go. And he starts looking around at the storms, and he starts to sink, and then Jesus reaches his hand out to him, and grabs his hand and pulls him out and says, you have little faith, why did you doubt? And gets in the boat with him and stuff. Why did that happen? I mean, to teach us, to teach Peter, to teach, you know, it's like what a great thing that's happening in his life. And God is at work in these things. And what a beautiful picture of, of, of Jesus. You know, he could have just let him go. Well, I'm going to let him stay down there a little while. Perhaps I'll let a big fish grab him and vomit him out on the other side. That'll teach him a good, a good lesson. But Peter wasn't being rebellious. Peter was just jumping out in faith, not even thinking about what he's doing. And Jesus is like, you can do even more than this. You know, you should. So, you know, this is what God is at work in all of our situations of life. And he wants to show you more of his grace, more of his power. He can be to humble you. God is at work. The difficulty we have is trying to figure out what is the good that he's trying to work. And what's he doing? Why is he doing this to me? What do I have? like? I've got to figure this out. If I don't figure it out, more bad things are going to happen. Maybe. So we'll look at, at that a little bit. But at least in this beginning word, we know, being one word in Greek, tells us that this truth is not just something 
that's to be discovered by us from Paul is not something that we should debate and figure out, you know, whether, of course, we believe Paul's inspired, but was he right about this or not? It's like, oh, you know he's right. You just know it. It's just one of those things you read in the Bible, and it's like, I know that's true because I'm a believer. A non-believer's not going to read that and go, I know, they're going to go, oh, this is wonderful to know that God works all things together for good. What do I have to worry about? Well, we're going to see that in just a second. But God is working all things for our good to the believer. It's just self-evident and unquestionable. I mean, that's what our faith should be producing in us. The only question should ever be, well, how is this at work? And we'll not always get these answers on this side of glory, but still we trust, we hope, we know that it's true. Second, the verse says that to the ones loving God, to the ones loving God, okay, we know that to the ones loving God, all things are working together. So we're going to take it in the order, and this phrase is first in the rest of the sentence about what we know. Well, what do we know? We know that to those loving God, and that's what's called an emphatic order in Greek. That means he's saying that first. What we would do today is we would underline it. We would say it louder. We would put it in bold. We would, I don't know what you kids do. Oh, you put all capital letters or whatever you do. You'd add a picture on Snapchat to it. Whatever it is, you would do something to say, this is very important. I'm saying that to those who love God, this is true. So the truth, this truth, is only true for those who love God. God is not working in everything for the good of those who hate him. And you either love God or you hate him, and to ignore him is an act and symptom of a hatred towards God. But God is not working in everything for the good of those who hate him. And we can see this um, even in Ten Commandments, the second commandment of the Old Testament. If you keep your place here and go with me to Exodus, second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 20. It's just verses 4 through 6 as we read the second commandment. which begins in verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And in verse 5, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Visiting the iniquity. It means wrathfulness. That means there is there is unfavorable things that happen to those who hate me. But, because he's a jealous God, you can't go after other gods because that's unloving of him to allow that. But he shows, ESV says, steadfast love. That's that word chesed, this covenanted, promised love of God. But he shows steadfast love to thousands. And that can even be translated, it may, it may mean thousands of generations. But it's to to multitudes more of those who love me and keep my commandments. And I always, anytime I read this, I, I think it was Chandler, so we were memorizing children's catechisms. One of the things you do in it is memorize the Ten Commandments, not in the shorthand like we do, but the actual whole commandment. When he would say this, I remember him saying, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of 
with those who love me and keep my commandments. He has loved the thread thousands. He must have said it like that when he was little. We said it, he said it once, and we all had him on the back for that or something, and that's the way he always said it. So that's why I always hear it. But look what he's saying. This is, these are the recipients of his grace. These are recipients of his love. These are recipients of his mercy upon them. They're not being treated as their sin deserves. They're being treated out of the lavishness of his mercy and grace toward them in Christ Jesus. Those who love him. Believer, you're a Christian. And one of the things that identifies us as a believer is that we love God. If you don't love God, you can say whatever else you want to say about what you believe and things that you think and things that you do, but you don't love God, you're not a believer. Depart from me, you worker of unrighteousness, I never knew you. To know God is to love God. And so as all believers, this verse is talking to you. So you might ask yourself, gosh, I don't know if I love God enough. I can answer that quickly. No, you do not love God enough. We do not love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. We do not. And that's why we still need grace, mercy. We still need the gospel. We still need Christ to hold us fast. He holds us. Paul is saying that we need not worry about any of our sufferings to be working against us ultimately. But again, for those not loving him, Nothing is working for the good because even the good things that happen to them are heaping up judgment for them on the day of judgment. Even the good things that are happening to them because they aren't thankful for them. They aren't gracious, grateful for them. They aren't acknowledging by whose hand they come. They're heaping up judgment for themselves on the day of judgment. It's a great motivation for us to call the lost to turn to Christ. Third, for those who love God, everything is working for good. Now, the, the English Standard Version, the King James Version, and almost every English translation that I could find says, all things work together for good. So, that is a good translation. <laughs> that is a fair translation. All things work together for good. And it's true to the meaning because all things do work together for good to those who love God. But it's not the most literal way of translating that verse. And I don't always go to the Revised Standard Version, the RSV. It's got some problems, but the ESV was based off of it. Like anybody cares about this stuff. A couple of you do. So the RSV translates it like this, catching the important nuances here. It says, we know that in everything, God works for good with those who love him. But it is this idea, it's not simply the things that are working together. We know that all things work together for good. So if it's this idea, and that's true again, but if that's all you got, and that's the way you're thinking about it, then what you, you might subtly, that might subtly make us think is that um, all those things must be good. So that all these things are working together, so it's like, well, uh, what about hard, difficult things? Because it's not always that the things that that the things are good. All things; these aren't always good things. Sometimes they can be horrifically evil things, or incredibly 
difficult, hard things. But God is always loving, good, and kind to his children. So what Paul is saying, these sufferings, these trials, these tribulations, it's like you need to know something in the midst of it. That God is the one working all things together for the good of those who love him. It's just a subtle difference, but it's, it's there in the language. Even our sufferings and our inward groanings being upheld by the Spirit, praying for us with wordless groanings. How do I know that God is for me? Because I love Him. How do you know that God is for you? Because you, you love Him. And that love, even as weak as it may be at times, John Murray calls that love the highest mark of the favor of God. Your love for God is the highest mark of the favor of God. For Christ died for the ungodly while you were yet sinners. First John, John talks about love a lot. First John 4.10, he says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, to die on the cross, to suffer the shameless, shameful, painful death on the cross for us, for our sins. That's love. And then, to later, well, let me say this. Our loving Him didn't cause Him to die for us. So don't get that craziness in your head. Your love for God did not cause God to die for you. Our loving Him didn't cause Him to save us or after He's died for us to later apply His sacrificial atoning work of the cross to us. Like He dies on the cross, uh, sacrifice for sins, and then He says, now I'm going to step back and see who takes advantage of it. Who is it going to be? Who is it going to be? Who, oh, you love me? There you go. You get, it was like Oprah handing stuff out. You get what you get. What he was like, but you got to raise your hand. You got to ask for it. You got to love me. And then I will apply this to you. You've got to understand God sent his son to die for his church. He sent his son to die for his people. And he sends his spirit into the hearts of those whom he is going to bring to himself so that you must be born again from above. And that doesn't happen as a result of your love for him. Your love for him is a result of his love for you. So your love for him is a mark that you are favored by God because you wouldn't love him if he did not first love you. And that's 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Now, a lot of people take that verse and they destroy the word because, but you have to get it. Why do we love him? He did something. He worked all kinds of things together in my life. He, he took bad things and said, this is going to be to my glory because you're going to see how far from me you deserve to be. And yet, I send my son to die for you so that you might see how much you are loved. It's the, it's the eye and the tulip, the irresistible grace that, that's given to us, that this is for those who love God because he has first loved us. And then fourth, the good. We know that to the ones loving God, everything he is working together 
for good. Well, that's good. Good is good. But what's good for the man that has, you know, a leg that's you know, in the Civil War, gangrene leg, what's going to be good for him is, little children's drop ears, chopping his leg off. But if somebody starts chopping our legs off right now, that is not a good thing. So it all depends on your circumstance. It all depends on what is our need. It depends on the situation. So if we're going to look at what is the good, we're going to use a big word because we have to think eschatologically. It sounds good. It reminds me of um, Scatman Crothers every time I think about it. Eschatologically. It's like you're scatting. Eschatologically. It means that eschaton is the end times. Uh, it's the last thing. So ultimate good. Things that will be working for our good ultimately. You know, it's like the guy getting his leg chopped off in the Civil War is not happy about it. I can promise you. He may be ultimately happy because this guy's going to save my leg. Life. <laughs> His leg may be saved somewhere, I don't know. But and ultimately, in time stuff, some of the good, probably most of the good, will be revealed and fulfilled in glory. So we're talking about ultimate things. So keep your place here and turn to Psalm 73. This is one of those psalms that we, we sing from time to time. But listen to the words. Beginning in verse 1, truly God is good to Israel. So it's to the church, to believers, to those who belong to God, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps had nearly slipped, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them in the garment. He's looking at all things. And he's saying is like, I see all things working pretty good for these guys, and they don't even love me. And I'm sitting here suffering. And he says, verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. That's back when fatness was meant you were prosperous. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back from them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can... God know. God doesn't know what's going on. Is there knowledge of the most high? And behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. These guys are doing wonderfully. And they're cheating and they're lying and they're stealing and they're mocking God. And they're still doing good. What about me? All in vain for nothing. So he's complaining to God about his circumstance. Verse 14, for all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I said I'm going to speak like this, if I would say that I'm going to give voice to what I'm saying and thinking, I would betray the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, now he's turning Ecclesiastes on us. He's getting, you know, how do I, how do I understand? Where is wisdom in this? Where is understanding? It seemed to me a wearisome task. That's that word, hebel. Vanity of vanities. It's that word from Ecclesiastes. It's just nothing of nothing. I can't figure it out. It seemed to me just a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. I discerned their eschatological end. I dis discerned where they're headed. 
Truly, you have set them in slippery places. And you can always add this to this. Not us. Where has he put our feet? On a rock of Christ Jesus. But their feet, these non-believers, these people who seem to get everything they want by lie, cheat, steal, all these things, and you may be tempted, well, you know, I need to lie, cheat, cheat. I can be a little bit like that. I need to do, I need to get mine. I can do this. Look at them, look at them. Don't look at them. Because they might have a lot right now. They might have the big car. They might have the big house. They might have whatever it is that you think makes you successful and appearing as if the cosmos is all orchestrating itself together for your harmony and love and good. But God has put their feet in slippery places. And you will make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away by utterly by terrors like a dream when one wakes oh lord when you rouse yourself you despise them as phantoms when my soul was embittered when i was pricked in heart i was brutish i was like an animal and ignorant i was like a beast towards you he's just like how can i get myself caught in such a situation where i can look at all things happening around me and just go look at the ungodly and look at these people and why are Things like this happening to me. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Okay, so because I want to say, wait a minute, you, I would rather say, you are continually with me. He's like, he's like, I'm in the midst of this, but I'm with you because you're holding me. It's like a little kid trying to cross the road. It's like, no, you got me, you got my hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. The eschatological end. You will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your work. So I'm going to let other people know about how good you are. I'm going to let other people know that, yes, you may have all the physical, material things in this life that you think bring you happiness, but your feet are on slippery places. And there will come a day when there is judgment. And for the believer, there will be glory and happiness and reward. For the non-believer, there will be hell. You will receive the reward because your feet are set on slippery places. So that's this eternal perspective that the psalmist has and then just real quickly here Genesis 50 the first book of the Bible chapter 50 the last several chapters are talking about Joseph and this is a famous passage from Joseph he's at the toward the end you know he's, he's his brothers you know end up being the 12 tribes of Israel you know these the, the, the sons of Abraham um, have looked at Joseph and saw that Abraham seems to love Joseph more than the rest of them, giving him this coat of many colors. Oh, how nice. Where's our coat of many colors? And then Joseph has a dream as a teenager. Say, hey, I had a dream that my mom and dad are going to be bowing down to me and all you brothers are going to be bowing down to me too. And they're like, oh, really? You know, you don't like anybody that has a brother or a sister. You know. Again, I don't mean to talk about that, but I got grandchildren living in my house. So I know what it's, you, you, you know, he got more than me. She got more than me. 
What's up with that? And I can promise you, you take one of your children, if you have more than one, and you just take a week of just an experiment and start giving them all the good stuff. Just let it be known that maybe I'm just going to show you a little more favor than everybody else. They're just going to look at that and go, what a wonderful parent you are showing so much love and attention on one of us. That ain't what they do. They're not going to do that. They're going to be like doing everything they can to make sure that everything that guy gets is tarnished in some way. And this is what the brothers have done. And they get so jealous, they're going to kill him. They decide to murder him. That's how bad it can get. Careful how you raise your children. So they're out there, and then one of the brothers is like, let's not kill him, let's just put him in a pit, and so that these other slave traders will come by, and they'll buy him, and they'll sell him in a tree. Trying to save his life, but he's thinking, I'm going to come back. Actually, he says, what I'm going to do is come back later, and I'll save him. In the meantime, they find him. He's sold into slavery. All these bad things happen. He's accused of, of, of rape with this woman. He didn't do it. He runs away. He's put in prison. Uh, he's just harshly treated. All these things happen to him. And then finally, he's second in command in, behind Pharaoh in Egypt. His, his, his people, there's famine in the land. His family comes to him. They don't know, you know the story, I think. And he provides for them. He saves them. And then Abraham dies. The daddy is dead now. The protector, the patriarch, the one for the reason why Joseph is probably being nice to all us brothers who've been so mean to him. He's gone now. What's he going to do to us? And so we get to chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they say, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. And it's true, they did evil to him. And evil was done to him beyond just what they did. And so... He can look at all things and be thinking, why is this happening to me? What did I do wrong? Why are these things happening? Now the brothers are looking, it's like, we're going to get paid back now, verse 16. So they send a message to Joseph. Your father gave us this command before he died. <laughs> Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers for their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph went, wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and fell down before him as he had prophesied and it was prophesied to him in the dream. Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I'll provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for this purpose. In this life, sometimes, and it's hard to know in the midst of it, the trials that you're going through, the difficulties that you're going through, the sufferings you're having to endure, God is using, and they may be evil that's being thrust upon you, and that makes it hard to endure. And, but God is at work doing something and you may not see it ever unless they've got this angel in heaven you can talk to and say, what about this? What's going on? And he shows you and you go, ah, beautiful. Even the most difficult things. So Psalm 73 is, I discerned an eternal purpose. And in Genesis 50, we see God working things out even in this life for good. And then, Last place we're going to turn to, 2 Corinthians 4. This is our New Testament perspective from Paul so that we can see how we're to think. 
today on this side of the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 16 through 18. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self or our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They, they change. It's hard to tell what's going on. Some, you know, these things don't last forever. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So we're, it's called, a, again, a light momentary affliction. But God is working according to his purpose, which is point five, to those according to purpose being called. So these are the ones who are loving God. God is the one who calls in his gospel Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. God calls also according to his purpose. It's not for those who have been called with some special purpose, like you're all called you know, as believers, but there's some that are called to a special purpose. No, the reason anyone is called inwardly and changed and transformed and saved by the gospel, which when the Bible uses the word called in the New Testament, almost always is talking about this effective inward call where you're regenerated inwardly and drawn by God by the Holy Spirit. It's always for his purpose. He's got a purpose. He has a purpose for saving you. Purpose for saving me. He has a purpose for each thing that he does. But your calling was according to purpose. That means that things that happen in your life are not without purpose. Are not without meaning. And that he doesn't do things willy-nilly. He doesn't do things without a plan. He doesn't do things without a, a purpose in mind. He has a good and perfect plan, and he's completely able to carry it out. And this is where we can properly and accurately listen to God speak through the prophet Jeremiah to his Old Testament people in exile in Babylon when he says to them in Jeremiah twenty-nine eleven, I know the plans I have for you. We use that a lot. You know, things are going bad. I can't pay my electric bill. I know the plans I have for you. He does know the plans he has for us. He knows the plans he had for them. And he knows the plans he has for us. He knows the plans. And one thing is like, it's not just good that he knows. I mean, gosh, how bad it would be to have a plan and not know it. But he's saying, I know the plans. I have plans for you. I've got, there's, there's purpose. There's reason. There's something going on. And God knows the plans. And then he adds, Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And he was speaking of delivering them from captivity and returning them to the promised land. And he has promised us in Christ the same. Deliverance from our captivity and a welcoming home to the promised land as we get a foretaste of it in the church, but ultimately new heavens and new earth that we get to be with him. And in the middle part of this verse is where we get a little bit hung up, where he says, plans to prosper you. I am wearing my Millennium Falcon pen, tie clip, which makes me think of Star Wars, which made me think of Princess Leah's quote to Han Solo, which is, if money is all that you love, then that is what you will receive. God has plans to prosper you. What's that look like? 
if money is all that you love, then that is what you will receive. If you come to God for money, God is not your God. Money is. This is not talking about riches. It could be talking about poverty. How is he going to prosper the church? You should see how he prospers the church in Haiti. How is he going to prosper us? And if we can just, we just think material stuff, we're not thinking properly. For those who love God, we have learned the secret to contentment in all circumstances, and that's the I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've learned to be content if I'm rich, if I'm poor, if I'm sick, if I'm healthy. I've got, how am I supposed to be content in any of that stuff? Through Christ who strengthens me. God works ceaselessly and purposively in our lives for our good and for his glory so that he will say as he finishes this chapter 8 that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And indeed, God is working in all things for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Father God, you have poured your love into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Help us to love you more. Help us to know that your favor is cast upon us, that you are with us, you are for us, you are in us. And indeed, our sufferings, our trials, our tribulations, all of these things are working an eternal weight of glory. And we don't know what you're orchestrating in this life, but we're your servants. We are to love your plan, your ways, your purposes. Help us to, to love you most of all, so that wherever we find ourselves, it's not without you, it's with you. That we might, with Moses, say we would rather not go into the promised land but have you than to go into whatever that promised land might look like without you. For you are our promised land. So we thank you that it's not just that you love us, but that you tell us. The Spirit within us prays for us with these groanings that are too deep for words. And that indeed all the things, all things are working together for the good. You are at work in these things for our good and to your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.